0: Uh, just be, if you didn't get the email notice yesterday, because of wanting you to be able to celebrate Christmas with your families and not wanting any crazy quarantine stuff to happen, I said, well, "Let's just wait a few weeks, so we don't have to worry about it." So, sorry if you were planning to to feast with us today. We'll 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 do it in a few weeks. We'll keep you posted. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter eleven to the Tower of Babel. I'm hoping as we go through this, you keep seeing how the, these patterns in Genesis get replayed and retold, uh, pointing us to Jesus, that the whole Bible, even though it's a library of different books and genres and different ways of communicating, it's one story about God's promised hero and how he's going to come, come to earth and undo what's, all the damage that sin and death have caused and so in our advent series that's what we've been doing in genesis 3 to 11 that when you sit down at the dinner table uh, we have these guests there that haunt us and divide us right of of death and and pride sickness weakness all these things that we prefer not to talk about and the bible says well we have to talk about it right To, to really understand the meaning of christmas and what god began to do in christ so Let's read Genesis 11. We're really going to move from Noah to Abram today, but we're going to zero in on the Tower of Babel later. Let's listen to God speak to us today. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar then they said come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth and the lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built and the lord said behold they are one people Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And this is God's word to us today. He has spoken to us in love. Um, Let's pray. Our Father and our God, the Christmas story really does scatter the proud and lift up the humble. And so I pray this morning you would humble us with your good news that you had to come down to us. And as we see that reality, I pray you would bind us together as one, even as you and Jesus are one, so that the world may know that you sent Jesus in love to love us in the world. So may we be your faithful witnesses because of what we hear today in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier this week, I sent out a a great quote that sums up the human nature so far in Genesis 3 through 11, that, that we human beings are a mystery to ourselves. We're both rational and irrational. We can be civilized and savage. We're capable of deep friendship as well as murderous hostility. We seem to be free as well as in bondage. We're the pinnacle of creation as well as creation's greatest danger. Shakespeare says, we're a work of art. And then Arthur Miller writes that humans are very dangerous because we meet not in a garden, but after the fall, east of Eden, after many, many deaths. And so the question we keep asking is, who can fix all of that? (laughs) Who can fix us? Who can fix the world? And as we've seen so far, Right? Cain and Abel have shown us that we're dealing with sin that's a power that rules over us. Uh, we need liberated from ourselves and these enslaving desires. We've seen how death is filling the earth and that, that we need nothing less than the hope of resurrection. And then we, last week we looked at Noah and the flood and, and it showed how like sin spreads like a plague. And God's judgment in the flood was... Severe, yes, but not even the flood could change the human heart, uh, because we're, we're still bent on evil from our youth. And so today we're going to move from Noah uh, to, to the Tower of Babel, and which will set us up for Abram in chapter 12 after Christmas. But really what we're going to add is, what's wrong with the world? Pride and prejudice. <laughs> the nation's divided. And... and Jesus has to put that back together again, too. And so let's look at this text this morning. We're going to see God's hope and love for the nations. We're going to see how God scatters the proud and then how God joins us, joins together the humble. So let's start by looking at chapter 9, verse 26. You need to have your Bible open here. And look at god the scope of God's concern for the nations because we do have a, a mini proclamation of God's plan for all the families of the earth here by Noah. Right, and you remember Genesis 9:26. this is post-flood. Uh, this is after Noah got off the boat. He discovered wine, he passed out. He's drunk naked, his son Ham does something horrible, dishonorable, shady, we're not really sure what it is, but not good, and you can see already Sin is dividing the family of humanity, right? That's what you get in this proclamation. Uh, Canaan, Ham's son, is cursed to be the servant of his brothers. It's foreshadowing, foreshadowing more conflict, more family division. I mean, you can, it's pointing ahead to Israel and Canaan being at odds hundreds of years later. Um, but part of what this text is doing and leading up into the, all the different nations in chapter 10 is it wants us to look at the world and recognize where we came from, that we're all one family, that all conflict, whether it's in your household, uh, with your coworkers, you have a problem with the government, uh, nation rising up against nation, according to the Bible, all conflict, you can trace your family ancestry all the way back to Adam. And then if you want to understand human beings, you got to see us as one big giant dysfunctional family. (laughs) Right, we like to look at 2020 and 2021 and all these very, you know, like giant icebergs. We can see how divisive we are and how divided we are over particular issues. Genesis is telling us it's not abnormal, right? And so it's in the midst of this conflict in Noah's family that Noah gives this proclamation that it, and hope that it will not always stay that way, right? Because Noah says, "'Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, "'let Canaan be a servant. "'May God enlarge Japheth, "'and let him dwell in the, Shem, the tents of Shem, "'and let Canaan be a servant.'" And so we've got to break this down a little bit here. What's the blessing that Shem is going to get? Or that he receives or already has, seemingly, he knows God's name. Right? Blessed be the Lord. That's God's covenant name, Yahweh. Uh, he he has fellowship with the God. I mean, part of what this is leading you to see is like that the promise of the Messiah, God's blessing in the world is going to come through the family of Shem, lead you past Babel into to Abram. That God's blessing to the world is going to come through the Semitic family, the family of Abram, right? And that's why it matters that the blessing here is to receive the gift of knowing God's name. That's a big deal in the scriptures. We've already read it earlier in Genesis, right, that the the people started to call upon the name of the Lord, right? Right? When you start to think about how names work, there's nothing more personal than knowing one another's name. And if you know God's name, it's, it's connecting you in personal relationship with the living God. Right, Noah's praising the Lord, the God of Shem. Shem knows the Lord, Yahweh. God claims him, Shem claims him. They're together in seed form here. And the Noah keeps going here is, may Japheth get to share in this blessing. May, and it says, Japheth is the Hebrew word for enlarge. In simple form, right? It is Japheth, may you have lots of lands and lots of kid. Right? May your family explode as well as have a place to live, fill the earth. But then it also talks about him dwelling in the tents of Shem, who knows the living God. And so, I know this is ancient, Hebrew uh, prophecy here, but many people throughout the church have seen Noah's words about Japheth dwelling in the tents of Shem as being a small picture of what God's going to do among the nations, is reunite the family of God, have the nations reunited Right, the, right now, the human family is dysfunctional and divided because of pride and prejudice. Noah's words are that as you follow the family tree one day, the family line of Japheth <laughs> will dwell in the tents of Shem, where God's blessing is, where God's name is. All right, so, so you know that I'm not making this up. <laughs> right? I'm not the only one to come up with this. John Calvin, uh, always good to trust uh, Father John here he says that the, the gospel was uttered through Noah and Abraham, right? And this prophecy is still receiving its fulfillment every single day because God is inviting the scattered family of humans and is gathering people at every side to sit alongside Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in God's kingdom. And then he goes on to say that the calling of the nations to be one family, blessed by the Lord, That's declared by Noah so that you can see that this was God's plan all along. That inheritance to eternal life was always from the beginning aimed at the entire world, not just this one particular family, right? And so start to wrestle with that. Noah's hope is that, yeah, his family's dividing and we're gonna get to chapter 10, how it splits into all these different nations. The hope is they would all dwell together in the same tent. Right, and I know we don't, my, we don't think about living in a tent as good news, because we're not nomadic peoples. But it's it's a family picture. Right, people living in the same tent are living life together. They're eating meals together. Uh, this is family. Right, intimate fellowship. You're at peace when you sit in someone else's tent. <laughs> It's hard in the ancient world to get a much more intimate picture, which is why God came and dwelt in a tent among his people, all right? Chapter 10 is going to make this hope bigger because you start to see what God has to put back together because Noah's family explodes, that, that you need all these nations to gather together in the same tent when they're divided by language, by culture, by prejudice, <laughs> Right? But that's the hope. That's the hope that one day people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would gather in the same tent, be part of the same family, be united because they know the Lord. They're blessed. Right? And so as you, you keep going here in chapter 10, starts a new section here that these are the generations of the sons of Noah born to them after the flood. He's, God has blessed them. They're filling, they're multiplying, they're filling the earth. And there are 70 nations listed, right? They're not every nation in the world as you would, right? If you're in seventh grade geography and you got to memorize all the countries of the earth, right? It's not as specific at that. This is a symbolic list of all of humanity coming out of Noah's family. And it, you can read the names. Um, some of them are gonna sound familiar, right? Sons of Ham or Cush, Egypt and Put and Canaan. Uh, you can hear about Nineveh, You can hear to Shem, right? I mean, these different family names. But really the point is that they're spreading and filling the earth and there are 70 nations. So Japheth's sons spread out to the coastlands, east and west, towards Spain, towards Greece, towards the Black Sea. Ham's sons are in Northern Africa. In Arabia, in parts of the Eastern Mediterranean, you have the Shemites. The sons of Shem, they're spreading out in, in northern Mesopotamia, Syria, like that part of the world. And the point of this whole section is that these are names that become particular language groups and nations, right? And part of the reason they're here is that you would see they all come from the same family. Right. Even when you read names like Assyria, Egypt and Babylon, who, if you know the rest of the story of the Bible, they're not going to be friends. They're going to do horrific things. There's going to be all kinds of dysfunctional family drama and conflict, including distrust, slavery, and cruelty. But you start to connect that to what Noah's hope was in the beginning when all, before all this exploded. Right? Racial reconciliation, multi-ethnic, communities dwelling together in the same place that will happen that's noah's hope right so you gotta we gotta put our family divisions and and dysfunctions in that context that right now we're divided but through the blessing of the lord you can be un- reunited reconciled right and that's a massive hope is it not i mean just go read the news when you get home today well, it's a day of rest. Maybe you should do it tomorrow, right? But the, the way the Bible talks here about hope for every family of the earth, there is no ancient literature that, that shows that kind of care and concern for the entire world. No religion has that kind of specific multi-ethnic hope, especially in the ancient world, right? I find that really encouraging. Right, that God's concern is more than just our little tribe. He's getting us to think outside of ourselves. Right, and so one, one theologian put it this way, that to be God's people in the Old Testament, right at the beginning, they're being called to look at their, their surrounding neighbors, their na- the nations, as potential future partakers in the same salvation. And therefore, you ought to embrace them in hopeful love. Right? And that reality of embracing your neighbor, embracing the nations in hopeful love, that's unheard of anywhere else in the ancient world. Because in the ancient world, if you had a God, it was your tribe's God and you didn't share. And your job, that ancient God that you believed, well, you want to show that he was stronger than every other God and so you would go and fight. This is different. And so... Here's how I think you apply this. Noah's hope is our hope as Christians. We embrace our neighbors in hopeful love that they too may one day be partakers in this same future salvation with Christ. That's how we're called to see our neighbors, even our enemies, to quote Jesus. Love your enemies. Be like your Father in heaven. See, this relentless love for the nations is unique to the Bible because it's unique to the Lord. That's his character. He really does love every single family and household in the earth. He's pursuing them with his good news. And so, the question to ask is, who in this Christmas season, you think about family dysfunction, who do you need to embrace with hopeful love? You know, who do you need to pray? Lord, you blessed me in Christ. How do I be a blessing and, and work, Trust you to work out reconciliation in my life, that we might dwell in the same tent in peace, because of Jesus, the Lord. Right? I mean, Paul starts to use some of this language as you 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 read the rest of the story of the Bible of families. You know, the the world splits into all these nations. And when Paul goes to Athens in in Acts chapter 17, he uses a similar argument here and a similar picture. Because he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, who is Lord of heaven and earth, what did this God do? He made from one man every nation of mankind. So here's Genesis 10. To live on the face of the earth. And he determined their periods and the boundaries of where they live, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And then he goes on to say, yet God is not actually far from each one of us because in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets, he says to the Greeks, we indeed are his offspring. We're all part of the same family. And then Paul goes on to say, here's how you get reunited to God and his, these other people. God commands everywhere, all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man that he has appointed. And of this he gave assurance by raising him from the dead. All right, Paul's trying to get a conversation about Jesus going in Athens from people who have no idea about the Bible. And what does he do? He says, hey, we're all related and God's appointed Jesus to, to reunite us, to, to, to God <laughs> and to one another. And so the way I see the gospel working itself out in chapter 10 here and the way the New Testament applies this is God is calling all people everywhere no matter what nation, ethnicity, race you're from to come and trust the resurrected Jesus. That's where you find the blessing of of God to protect you from God's real judgment for the ways we've treated each other. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, Chapter 2, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you've actually been brought near by the blood of Christ. And Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances in order that Christ might create in himself one new man in the place of the two so making peace and reconcile us to God and one body through the clock cross killing the hostility. And so he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. It's the same message for no matter who you are, it's peace in Christ. And then he goes on to say, here's the, com- here's the family of God. Here's how you think about us. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, one family, same tent. So, I, know I jumped, jumped ahead, but I had to follow that rabbit trail. right? The, the nations divide. The hope of the gospel is that they'll be reunited in Christ. Even despite our very real pride and prejudice that divides us. Christ kills that hosti- hostility by dying in our place. So, Noah has hope for the nations. Chapter 10 wants us to see that God's not surprised by the nations. It's the result of Noah being fruitful and multiplying. His plan is to bless the world and reunite the world through one particular family, Shem. And so the question then comes as you get to Babel is where does this pride and prejudice come from? Right? Why are we so divided? And that sets up chapter 11 here with the Tower of Babel. that God scatters the proud, right? What divides us? Why is it so hard to get along? And in chapter 11, we heard these, these people in ancient Babylon in the plain of Shinar, what do they say? Come, let us make a name for ourselves, right? We want to make a name for ourselves. That's the problem. The narrative starts with, unity the whole earth had one language they had same words they're working together they're using technology they're building a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and they say let us make a name for ourselves so we don't have to be dispersed over the face of the whole earth and there's a few important things here to help understand this text right they don't want to be scattered they don't want to be spread out even though that's Exactly what God told Noah and his family to do. Right? God told Noah, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Spread out. It's not bad that you're different from different nations. right? Fill the earth. God's plan for us is one family, but these humans, they refuse to fill the earth like they were told, to, to steward, take care of the whole world. And the, the clue is, is, when you're reading chapter 10, the guy, who, you know who started Babel? It was Nimrod, right? It's his real name, not an insult like we hear it today. <laughs> uh, the Hebrew word just means rebel, which tells you the seat of the city is a rebel, and they're united in the rebellion. They, they don't want to keep God's commandment. Second, they talk about wanting to make a name for themselves. Uh, and that means what it means now, Right? You want to make a name for yourself. It's everybody in this room. I want to be seen. I want to be known. I want to be significant. We want our name to be famous. Right? To quote Hamilton, the world's going to know my name. <laughs> right? I won't sing it for you. Right? But that's the idea, is that because of their greatness, because of what they accomplish, because of the works of their hands, and because of their religiosity, right, too, there's a spirituality tied into this, that's their tower trying to reach the heavens to be like God, they want stories to be told about them, songs to be sung. We want to be remembered in per- you know, from generation to generation. That's when our legacy. This is a whole culture based on what we would call selfish ambition, right? And so my question is, as we wrestle with this text is do you see that you are engaged in a similar construction project to get the world around you to make a big deal about you and your name? Right? I mean, Babel was a community self-naming construction project. We're, We're not any different thousands of years later. Probably the only thing we're different in is that collectively we all believe it's our own job to make our own name individually. They were much more united. We're pretty individualistic, right? So think about that burden that you have to make a name for yourself that it's up to me to construct a life that is meaningful, successful, that lifts me up into the heavens, that's better than that person down the street, right? I gotta keep up with the Joneses. I gotta be someone who's fun, who has a great a great life that people envy. Right? We don't say these things out loud, but we just say, I want my life to be good. And I want people to see that when they say my name. Right? We do that in church. We want people to see our goodness. Uh, religion can do this, right? I want to climb higher. I want to be awesome, right? In, in my line of work, right, I want people to remember me and the way I communicate <laughs> rather than even though know, my job is to point to Jesus. You can see how these things work themselves out. It's all a self-naming construction project. It's pride. And pride leads to prejudice, which leads us to compete and divide, right? And I know when you read this, I've read Babel since I was a kid, and the first time through, it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal, right? Why does God say, oh, no, nothing is impossible for them? What are they going to do? Why is he all doom and gloom? But Babel is the same word as Babylon. And if you know the rest of the story, the seed of how Babylon acted is right here. Babylon, they grew up to be this terrifying global empire, nation rising up against nation, enslaving the weak, all because Nebuchadnezzar wanted this great kingdom, this great power, wanted to be at the top. That's exactly what he says in Daniel four, right? Look at this great thing that I have built for my glory that shows off my majesty right before God humbled him. See, if you live to make a name for yourself, you're setting yourself up to try and climb to the heights and be really frustrated when you don't get it to be stuck in despair. And even more so, to be engaged in this self-naming construction project, it sets you up to be competitive. Right? Either by culture and community, right? my nation's better than your nation, or as an individual, my, fam- my life is better than your life. Mm-hmm. It's the seed of it. And the way Babel makes a name for themselves is they want to build a city and a tower into the heavens. And here's where it gets really clear. You know what they're doing when they build this tower? They're they're declaring themselves to be able to climb back up into heaven to be good enough. Because the tower, all the the ancient scholars say this is like a ziggurat. It's like a temple in the center of the city that shows, look at us. Look how high we've climbed. There's, There's this arrogance that we are good enough that we can dwell with the gods, we can climb to the clouds, we can get higher and higher. Starts to make it a little clearer, doesn't it? That our self-naming construction projects, there's something in my heart that says, I need to climb and ascend to heaven. If I can quote Isaiah, above the stars of God, I'm going to set my throne on high. I'm going to ascend to the heights of the clouds. I'm going to make myself like God, the most high. And that's what Babel's all about. So the question this morning to ask is, do you see that seed in your own heart, pride, the desire to name yourself? The demand to be seen, to be honored, to be respected, to look at those around us as People that you can use to construct a life to make a name for yourself. Right? It's really helpful here because I know when I, we talked about this in Sunday school, when you read about the description of the human heart in the Noah account and it says, says that the human heart is evil continually, and you're just like, man, that sounds so dark. It sounds like we're in the midst of, yeah the worst case scenario, that humans are awful. This adds to the picture and adds nuance because not only are we bent on evil or attracted to the evil, we also wanna make a name for ourselves, which we we want people to like us. This is why we do good. We wanna ascend to the heavens, we wanna please God. I mean, haven't you heard that objection and I don't like the idea that Jesus is the only way to the Father because what about all those good people out there, those people enslaving themselves to be generous to their neighbors? What about Gandhi? Right? You can fill in, the earth, fill in the gap of what about that really, really good person out there who doesn't know Jesus? And Babel says, yeah, that is true. They, they are doing good things, but who are they doing it for? Whose name do they care about? Do they know the name of the Lord that created them. Right. So, to summarize all this, right, humanity is infected with pride. We, we're part of this whole planet-wide rebellion that we want to climb up to where God is and name ourselves. Right. And how does God respond? Look at verse 5. This is the center of the text, and we sang it this morning, too, in in some ways. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower. It says that twice. The Lord had to come down. So put yourself naming project in that context. We're trying to climb up. We want to be good enough to get into heaven by our own good deeds. What does the Lord do to, to see where you're at? He's got to come all the way down to where we are, right? It's that portrait of, uh, well, I see it with my kids in the yard, right, of they're up here and they got to stoop way down to check out the building projects of the ants and the grasshoppers. (laughs) Mm -hmm. To see what they're up to, what the children of man have built. There's intentional irony in the story The Lord has come down to them. Heaven has to come to earth. Earth can't climb up into the heavens. Which is such a humbling statement. So put it this way. My efforts to make a name for myself will never get high enough. I'll always fall short of the glory of God. Because how can you beam yourself up into the heavens? God has to come down to us. And that's the whole story of the Bible. All right, humans in all kinds of different ways are trying to climb up to, to make themselves equal with God by being good, by being good enough, by the works of our hands, to justify ourselves, to say, I'm finally there. I've, I've achieved. And God says, that's not going to work. Look at the world. It's a mess. We're divided. I have to come down, culminating with what we sang this morning, Jesus, born in Bethlehem, child of heaven, descend to us, we pray. And so in Babel, God comes down and says, hey, they're one people, they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they do, and nothing they propose will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and let's confuse their language so they can't understand. And the Lord confuses and disperses them over the rest of the earth. And he, God confuses their language. This is a gracious judgment. It's a, he's nipping their pride in the bud, if you will. Right? It, you can hear echoes of what he said, did in Genesis 3, right? You remember, God said, I don't want them to take the tree of life because humans are broken, and we don't want to, them to stay like that forever. It's the same idea here. He's looking at humans. He knows what this is going to result in. And he says, I don't want them in their pride to rise up, to never, to get so stubborn hearted, they'll never hear my good news. And so he scatters the proud and he f- the earth gets filled with nations that are divided by pride and prejudice, which is very far from where we started in Noah, is it not? And the nation's divided, everybody trying to survive on their own rather than the same tent united So, how does God put all this back together again? And this leads to the Christmas story here. (sighs) Right? Christmas reverses Babel. It starts that that process. In a couple ways. Here we are proud, wanting to to be like God, ironically, even though we've been made in the image of God. What happens at Christmas? Christmas. God has to scatter the proud. He comes after us who are obsessed with our name because Christmas is the very opposite of Babel. Babel is about coming up, Christmas is the story about God coming down to us, literally in the flesh, in humility. Right? I mean, this is the character of Jesus in Philippians 2. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to be held on to. But instead, he took on the form of a servant, becoming human, like us, obedient, suffering even to the point of death on a cross. Why did he do that? Did you know that Jesus was engaged in in a name construction project? You can put it that way. Whose name did he want everyone to know? It wasn't his own, exactly. I said, I want... Glorify your name, Father. That that was his prayer. He wanted everyone to know the character of God, the character of God who would come down to earth. John 17, on the night before Jesus was killed, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus prays this in John 17, O righteous Father, even though the world doesn't know you, I know you. And these know that you have have sent me, talking about his disciples. And here's what he says to them. Father, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, and here's what that means, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus connects knowing God's name with being loved as Jesus has been loved. So you start thinking about this. Why do you spend your blood, your sweat, your anxiety, your tears, and your work to make a name for yourself? I want a name, and I want people to love me. I want to be seen. Right? Why did Jesus shed his blood, weep over sin, and come down to earth to work? even to death on a cross for us arrogant sinners. Not, not for himself. Father, glorify your name and then give that name to us right? that we might have the rights to become children of God, to have our Father's name, to be loved as Jesus is loved. Right? It's the opposite of Babel. We think we've got to climb up to get a name and God says, no, I need to come down and give you my name because you can never earn it on your own. Right? And it's the most unifying thing if you stop and think about this. Right? The, mo- the poorest beggar and the most powerful emperor are told you are not good enough. You can construct a name for yourself however you want, but it won't be high enough. But both the poorest beggar and the most powerful emperor can both receive the love that Jesus has for all of eternity and and nothing. there will be no distinction between them other than they are individuals who now have the Father's name, they're brothers in Christ. And the more you, that, that gospel message that you are loved as Jesus is loved, that God's name came down and is given to you through faith as you admit your pride... It starts to put to death our babble-like hearts, right? That's why Paul would write to the church, let there be no selfish ambition among you. Instead, put on the mind of Christ, where you consider others more significant than yourself. Even better, you do actually ascend when you become a Christian. Did you know that? Jesus rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven. And where are you located? According to Paul, you're located in Christ. That's where your name is. Your life is now hidden with Christ on high, seated spiritually with Christ the Lord. You can't get any higher honor than being associated with Jesus because he shares his name with you. All right. Now, who did Jesus do that for? And this is how Babel starts to get put back together. Right. The nations. Not just you, not just me. Because right. after the resurrection, Jesus ascends into heaven, he sends the Spirit, and the Spirit comes down in Acts chapter 2. And Peter preaches this great sermon that, hey, he points the finger at his own people who are from all different nations. It lists several nations that are directly from Genesis 10. And they're surprised because they're starting to hear Peter's words in their own language. They're united. They think Peter's drunk, but it's really the Spirit uniting them and saying, you can hear the gospel in your own language because God's desire is that the nations would come together. Babel is starting to be reversed. The blessing of Shem comes and is the blessing of knowing the Father through Jesus And as you all gather around Jesus, we get to dwell in the same tent, the household of God. And that's for every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so what glorifies God? How do you lift up his name? Well, when you overlook your differences and you come together and say Jesus is worthy, and you actually start to say crazy, ordinary Christian things, like, Father, hallowed be your name. Hallow your name in the, in the earth. Right, it changes your desire from my name being the most important to f- our Father's name being the most important. Right, may, may people see you, Father, in me. It, it's starting to go after humility. It's, when I go to work, my work matters, but I'm doing this as a representative of my Father who loves me, and I don't have to go out into the world full of anxiety, full of despair, because I'm wondering if I'm good enough. I have my father's name. He claims me. Right. And in, in this day and age, <laughs> if it be pointed, right? Part of what the gospel's going after is saying Jesus' name matters more than more than politics, more than race, more than power, more than money, more than success. Let us set those things that are that are important. But let us welcome one another as God has welcomed us and set those things aside. Let us show the world how powerful this name is to unite the human race. It's a completely different kind of name construction project that we want others to know the Father, to hear the gospel, to get to know Jesus so that we may be one as Jesus and the Father are one. Different way of looking at the world, isn't it? There are two ways to live, according to, to Babel, according to Genesis. We're going to get to Genesis 12, where God says to Abram and his offspring, I will give you a name. Right? You either go out into the world uh, full of insecurity and say, I have to construct a name for myself. Or, by faith, you can look at Jesus and say, my father has named me, and his banner over me is love, and I don't have to prove myself that way. Right. that's why Paul would say in Ephesians 3 in this great prayer for this reason I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named every family that according to the riches in his glory he wants you to be strengthened with power through God's spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith what do you need to know by faith well have the strength to comprehend what all the saints have known And continue to learn what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God in Christ. It surpasses knowledge. You have God dwelling with you. The more you believe that, you become, as part of this construction project, right, God's instrument for peace, an ambassador of peace in the world. right? So... I'll end with the, these great words from Charles Wesley in, a, in an old hymn. It says, Jesus, Lord, we look to thee. Let us in thy name agree. Show yourself the Prince of Peace and bid all quarrels forever cease. That is, that is the hope of the promise of the gospel at Christmas, that Jesus came that we might be united as one family again. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, there's good news here, and I pray you would give us the courage to admit the pride in our hearts and the faith to receive this name you so graciously give, that you love us more than we can imagine, despite us, our hearts being more desperately wicked than we care to admit. And so may this gospel of grace give us great confidence as we go out, as your representatives carrying your name, and we ask that you would hallow your name in our hearts and in the hearts of our neighbors, that they too might receive this grace through Jesus. And we can dwell together in peace, in Jesus' name. Amen.